Today on Ag News Daily. Well, I think what we saw throughout his administration is he um, he wanted to both uh, do right by the American farmer and was also trying in his mind to do right by the oil industry as well. We did secure a very important victory. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday. We are almost to the weekend, but not quite. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, how is your day going? Ashton, I was just thinking, I hope you asked me that question. Well, not really, but I have been eating, I don't know if you've ever had these or any of our listeners ever had, the Brookside Dark Chocolate Candies, whatever you want to call them. There's like blueberry flavored and there's pomegranate flavored they're like dried fruit wrapped in dark chocolate, which, you know, I'm thinking hypothetically in my head that they're healthy. I just read the nutrition label. They certainly are not healthy. And I've eaten, eaten almost a whole seven ounce bag just today. So my day is great. I've got lots of caffeine and chocolate in my system. And it's Wednesday. So we're almost through the hump of the week. So I'm doing great. Delaney's world is great. How's Ashton's world? It's so funny that you say that, Delaney, because I used to eat those when I was a kid. Like me and my stepmom were obsessed and I haven't eaten them in a while. And for like the past week, I've been trying to find them everywhere because I've been craving them. And now I've got to say, I'm a little bit upset, kind of jealous because I cannot find them anywhere. And here you are eating the whole bag. (laughs) Ashton, I tell you what I'm going to do just because I like you. I'm going on Amazon right now. And I'm looking to see if I can find you a bag and I'm going to mail you some so that you oh, can enjoy them. No, too. no. I, I would say you don't have to, but, you know, I'm kind of flattered and really excited. So, you know, you can go ahead and do that. I'll, I'll allow it. Ashton, <laughs> I found them. They're going in my cart right now. They're about to get shipped to your house. <sighs> my birthday's not until April, but it's like it came early. Well, it's almost Valentine's Day. This is like, you know, my Valentine's Day chocolate from there my you boss. Go. <laughs> That's good. We'll do that. It sounds perfect. Well, Delaney, let's go ahead and just kick things right off into the news for today, because I've got some interesting news coming from South Africa. Their wine industry said earlier today that it had asked a court to allow the main wine growing region to exempt itself from a ban on the sale of alcohol that was reinstated last month to ease pressure on hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Vinpro, which represents wine producers and sellers, said that it had approached the Western Cape High Court to seek interim relief from the ban, which would allow the premier of the Western Cape to regulate the sale of liquor in the province. The case is expected to be heard in court next week. Earlier, I shouldn't say earlier last year, it was in 2020, but late 2020 in December, as COVID-19 infections continued to rise in South Africa, the government introduced its third ban on alcohol sales since the start of the pandemic, which was aimed at preventing alcohol-related injuries that could further strain hospitals. Now, I didn't know that they had put this ban on alcohol Um, If I was in South Africa during the pandemic, I probably wouldn't be too happy because I think wine probably got me through a lot of this pandemic. (laughs) But South Africa has recorded the highest number of COVID-19 infections on the continent with over 1.4 million reported cases and nearly 42,000 deaths. So I imagine that their hospitals are quite strained. I don't doubt that. But the wine industry is kind of challenging this ban because, of course, that would 
really harm harm the wine industry, the liquor industry, alcohol, whatever you want to call it. But definitely interesting and not so sure if they don't lift this ban, what that'll do for the wine industry in South Africa and maybe even globally. Yeah, I can't say that I've ever had a South African wine. I'm sure it's great, but that is interesting news. It certainly is, and I agree with you. I don't think I've ever had a South African wine. Honestly, I probably haven't had any bottle of wine that's more expensive than $20. (laughs) Um, But I'm kind of hoping that we can see a little bit more, I guess, growth on this story as it comes through and as this uh, goes to court next week. All right. Well, I'm going to switch tracks here a little bit. Still talking international picture, but this is going on right now in China. You know, I just reported yesterday that China has had an insatiable desire for corn or a need for corn, I should say, even with high prices going on right now in both their domestic Dalian corn futures market as well as here in the United States. But to combat this record purchase that we've seen China make, uh, the Chinese government is urging the country's traders to stop hoarding corn. They said that they've seen quite a few folks having to substitute crops like wheat and rice in place of corn and soybeans since they're a cheaper commodity right now and being used for feed and other needs. But policymakers are saying that they need to step in and ease the record domestic crop prices by selling state stockpiles of substitutes. And they're saying that downstream industries have amassed these large corn stockpiles that are three times larger than a year ago. And that private industries there are holding tight to their stock supplies as Chinese corn prices continue to set records. And again, China can do this. They're a communist country. They can basically force people, I think state and uh, private, to release their stockpiles. But the other piece of this story that I don't really know enough about is, you know, China says one thing. They said, you know, what what was that last year that they had record stockpiles in reserves? We found out they really didn't. Is this a move to adjust market prices? I don't know. But I thought that was very interesting that they are having this dynamic go on. And so really, at the end of the day, it sounds like they're trying to figure out a way to try and sidestep having to make very many more export purchases from the United States and other countries. Well, Delaney, it sounds like we're just full of interesting news today because another interesting development that I have been watching along with many people in the ag industry is the closing of the Keystone XL pipeline. I have seen a lot of folks take to social media to talk about what they think about the shutting down of the pipeline and, you know, showing their support for the workers and the families on the pipeline. But an ag economist doesn't believe that the closing of the Keystone pipeline will impact energy prices in the short term. As one of his first moves as president, President Biden issued an executive order to block the Keystone XL pipeline that carries crude oil from Canada to the U.S. And Scott Irwin with the University of Illinois says it could be a signal for further regulatory moves to scale back the fracking revolution. He was even quoted as saying that could have implications for crude oil and natural gas prices moving forward. So the pipeline itself, I don't think, is going to have a big impact short term. But if we keep moving in that direction, then I think we will start to have some noticeable impacts on energy prices. 
And for farmers trying to factor in 2021 fuel prices for the upcoming planning season, Irwin says that there are other price drivers like the recovering economy putting pressure on crude oil supplies. Biden says leaving the Keystone XL pipeline in place would not be consistent with his administration's economic and climate goals. However, we've seen, I mean, I see, I say we, I've seen a lot of people talking about, you know, he, I'm not saying this is, you know, my opinion. I'm just saying this is what I have seen other people talking about on social media is that, you know, Biden is saying that he wants to improve the economy and everything since we've been in this pandemic, but shutting down this pipeline, it's shutting down also thousands of jobs. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a toss up on, is this really helping the economy? Is it really not? Um, But I don't really know. Here's my stance on it. And it, I mean, I'm, I guess I'll share my opinion to some extent. I usually try not to on the podcast just because I think, you know, as a journalist or as a reporter, I, it doesn't matter what I think. It, I just want to report the facts. But from what I've seen on Twitter, news articles, et cetera, discussions with coworkers, here's the thing that I think is the black guy of this all. He went ahead and shut down the pipeline. You know, that took, I don't know, I think I read somewhere like 1,000 jobs out of the circuit. Okay. But my beef with it is that he did this without having another plan in place to revitalize or give people those jobs that were losing their jobs by him shutting down the pipeline. You know, if he would have came in here and had another plan in place, had that ready to go and then shut down the pipeline, that would be one thing. But I think the issue a lot of people have is that he did this. He just it felt like very herky jerky. He just came in stepped into office and shut it down right away without having a plan in place for those people that were losing their jobs and their income. And, you know, you Ashton down there in Texas, that's oil country, you're in a unique position as well. I'm sure you pick up on nuances of what people are sharing down there. I'd be interested to hear, you know, from big oil folks down there. You'll have to see if you can drum up an interview, get somebody on to talk about this Keystone Pipeline, because like you, I've just read a lot of stuff on social media and the news. I haven't talked to anybody that's actually in the industry to understand their perspective, but I think it would definitely be an interesting interview sometime for the podcast. I agree with you. And I definitely think I can get somebody, especially being so close to like the the Midland Odessa area, Big Spring area, Mm -hmm. those are kind of big areas for for oil and whatnot. But another thing that I just want to add to something that's kind of going through my mind and a a question that's raising for me is what happens to all of these materials and everything that's gone into the pipeline, you know, so far, because I just watched a video earlier today of folks, you know, it's cleared out, nobody's on, on the job, but here's all these materials and, you know, kind of where do we go from here? kind of thing. But um, like you said, I can probably get somebody on here to kind of answer those questions for us. But other than that, Delaney, what's another news story that you're watching for today? Yes. Well, I have just two more pieces of news for today before we chat markets. The first of which is we just saw the National Milk Producers Federation release a report on dairy consumption during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I know we've got a few dairy producers that listen, so I wanted to be sure and share this piece of news. And I think it's a little interesting, and I don't fully understand how they put together this report, because their report points to increased demand for dairy milk and other milk products during COVID-19. They said that these products really remained constant throughout the market's uncertainties during this pandemic. And actually that we saw consumption rise in 2020. 
despite these economic closures. Now, my question or my hesitation in reporting this is, how does this report account for all of the dairy farmers that had to dump milk back in March, April, May? And, you know, we talked about that quite a bit on the podcast. I cannot even imagine having to do that. But this report that they put out doesn't really account for that, in my opinion. And so they said that, you know, milk was up, people drinking milk was up, and that's all positive, but I just don't really understand how they didn't really account for that time period where we did have to see dairy producers dump out milk and that, you know, went to waste. It's not like people were getting paid for that milk. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a little bit of a surprise to hear this report overall. That certainly is surprising, Delaney. And you make a great point on, you know, those numbers are are they, you know, completely true? What do we do about those, you know, producers that did have to dump out milk? I do, you know, the um, case of Anderlei, who we interviewed earlier in the summer, he was one producer that, you know, wasn't too concerned about that, didn't have too much trouble with that. But, you know, for folks up north, I think it hit them a little bit mm-hmm. harder. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Delaney, I just have one other story to talk about today, and it's coming from the USDA due to the national public health emergency caused by COVID-19, the USDA USDA today announced the temporary suspension of past due debt collections and foreclosures for distressed borrowers under the Farm Storage Facility Loan and the Direct Farm Loan Programs administered, administered by the FSA. USDA will temporarily suspend non-judicial foreclosures, debt offsets, or wage garnishments, and referring foreclosures to the Department of Justice, and USDA will work with the U.S. Attorney's Office to stop judicial foreclosures and evictions on accounts that were previously referred to the Department of Justice. Additionally, the USDA has extended deadlines for producers to respond to loan servicing actions including loan deferral consideration for financially distressed and delinquent borrowers. In addition, for the guaranteed loan program, flexibilities have been made available to lenders to assist in servicing their customers. And for any folks that this might apply to, I think I'm going to be putting this in the newsletter this week because it's pretty interesting. And it goes on to you know say a couple of more things and contacting your FSA and all mm-hmm. that good stuff. But just a little piece of interesting news once again. Yeah. And again, I guess I'm filled with opinions today. Um, I was just talking to my boyfriend Blaine about this yesterday, you know, not necessarily this specific program that we're seeing, but this whole year, last year, I should say, this whole last year with market facilitation payment programs, with CFAP payments, now this temporary suspension of foreclosures and past due debt. I have very mixed feelings on this. On the one hand, I am appreciative that the government is helping out folks. Um, You know, mainstream small businesses are getting it. So I'm glad agriculture is included in that. But the question that we were debating last night is, do government programs like this not let the market do its job? I do not want any producer to ever have to go out of business or face bankruptcy But if it's a producer that didn't manage their risk well, if, you know, there were things to have been avoided that maybe they could have done differently, is this keeping farmers in business longer that 
unfortunately, you know, just don't have the business IQ or savviness to remain in business? Or is this, you know, COVID-19, did that impact folks so poorly that perhaps they would remain in business under normal conditions? I don't know. I just am a big proponent of letting the market do its job. I think that's the point of having a futures traded market in a capitalist society. And it just begs the question in my mind, does this, you know, allow folks that should be going out of business to remain in business, just continuing the cycle of poor business decisions? I'm not saying this is for sure my opinion. I really would be interested to have a conversation with folks on Twitter, Facebook, wherever they can reach me at. I'm just interested to see what interested to hear what other farmers think. I know what the farmers I work with think, you know, my dad, my boyfriend, etc. But I'm just curious what other farmers think about this as well. But I'm gonna get off my soapbox. I'm gonna stop uh, running my mouth here. Let's talk about markets, Ashton. What do you say? Let's do it, Delaney. All right. And Ashton, we're going to put you in the hot spot soon. You've been doing the podcast now for about a year. So it's about time that you start reading the markets for us. So I'm going to kick them off today. We'll give you a little longer to learn how to read them. But let's start out here first in the corn market. March corn today up a penny and three quarters to close at 534. The May up a penny and a half to close at 535 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, the March contract up four and a half to close at 1374 and three quarters. The May up three and three quarters to close at 13. 73 and a quarter. Wheat pulled back today as the March contract down seven cents to close at 658 and a quarter. The May down six and a half to close at 657 and three quarters. Looking into the livestock markets today, weakness across the complex as the February live cattle contract shed 55 cents to close at 116.45. The April down 47 and a half to close at 122.62 and a half. In feeder cattle, March contract shedding a dollar forty today to close at one forty oh seven. The March, excuse me, the April down a dollar twenty to close at one forty three oh seven and a half. And in lean hogs, mixed trade today as the February contract added twelve and a half cents to close at seventy fifty seven. The April down sixty five to close at seventy six thirty. And wrapping up our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. February today up twenty four cents to close at fifteen sixty one. The March. Up 26 to close at 16.82. Now, before we tease up today's interview, I got a couple more quick thoughts. I'm just full of thoughts today, Ashton. Um, well, this is not a market we talk about. We don't really talk about stocks and bonds a lot on the podcast. But for anybody that's interested in hearing an interesting story related to the markets, you've probably seen this in the news. If you haven't, check it out. But there is literally a site called Reddit, which I don't really get. It's, you know, maybe Ashton, you understand what Reddit is. It's basically people writing reviews or blogging or putting out their opinions on this site. Is that right? Do you know what that is? I am not super familiar with the platform, but I know it's kind of just a social media thing where like okay. I said, they put out their opinions and all sorts of stuff. Um, I hear it's quite funny, but sometimes kind of quite drama filled. So I'm not well, sure yes. how this is going to go. <laughs> it is quite drama filled because we have here at Trader PhD, we've got some young people on the team. They've been trading a lot more lately. And we've got some folks on the team that have been trading GameStop futures. GameStop, excuse me, the video game company, you know, buy and sell equipment, etc. GameStop. There is this thread going on right now on Reddit. I haven't read it, but I've just heard other people talking about it. There's literally a thread going on on Reddit where it's basically all these independent traders, you know, kids, 
20s, 30s, 40s, etc., that have taken down the GameStop hedge fund. So there's literally a social media Reddit site thread that has just decimated the stocks. Just wanted to throw that in there if you are interested in reading it. Again, I don't, I haven't run into it a whole lot. I've just heard other people talking about it. It's kind of interesting. I'll probably have to read into it more later. But we're talking about all sorts of markets today, not GameStop. We're actually going to talk the ethanol market now, Ashton, and I'm going to be quiet and turn it over to our interview with Emily Score of Growth Energy. Well, I am joined today by CEO of Growth Energy, Emily Score, to chat with us about the incoming administration and how renewable fuels will handle the transition of the new administrations. Emily, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. So, Emily, give us the breakdown. You know, we've talked a lot. We obviously know or knew President Trump's stance on ethanol, but it doesn't seem like the Biden administration has been quite as vocal about their stance on the industry. Uh, From your stance, what are we to expect with this new administration and their relationship with renewable fuels? Well, I mean, actually, I'm very pleased with the extent to which Mr. Biden, President Biden, was on the record in his support of biofuels on the campaign trail. Um, If you look at his comments throughout the summer and into the fall, he repeatedly expressed support for biofuels, not only as the engine of the rural economy, but also as a vital tool in climate change. He doubled down on biofuels in his rural plan. He was specific in talking about the importance of a strong renewable fuel standard and annual blending obligations. And very importantly, he was very harsh in his express admonishment of the previous EPAs, of Trump's EPA abuse of small refinery exemptions. So with that record um, going into this um, presidency, I mean, we we have high expectations. He's got a real opportunity in the short term to kind of make good on some of those commitments and expressions. And so, you know, we I think we have some cause for optimism looking at this administration. Well, I'm glad you brought up the small refinery waivers as well, because that's one thing I really wanted to drill down on. You know, we saw President Trump try to issue a few final waivers before he stepped out of office last week. Those have obviously been put in a standstill here as we see the Biden administration stand in now. What do they do? What's the next moves from here? Will the Biden administration have the ability to sign off on those waivers or make them... Yes. Okay. So, so my my hope not just for those three exemptions that that the the Trump EPA granted truly at the eleventh and a half hour, just as they were on their way out um, of the administration. But we've got sixty five small refinery exemptions sitting at EPA um, that represent billions of gallons of demand. And so our hope is that um, I think what the, what the Biden administration needs to do is follow the law. There is a very important case that was very favorable to the industry and and reinforced what we know to be the case that EPA has abused its discretion. Uh, The Supreme Court has recently decided to hear this case. So they will go into oral arguments that will be heard this spring. I expected to, we all expect a decision end of spring, early summer. Hopefully that will kind of shut shut the book on the small refinery exemptions um, and send a clear, unmistakable signal um, that we we need to shut down the small refinery pipeline. Um, and then that hopefully allows the Biden administration to uh, reject uh, the vast majority of what are pending and get back to administering the RFS according to what Congress intended. And with some of those gallons that have been previously waived by the Trump administration, are those just 
gone, so to speak? Or is there any way to make whole what we've seen waived? Well, for the time being, yes, they're gone. However, there is uh, a lot of litigation. Growth Energy is a part of multiple, probably half a dozen lawsuits all around the small refinery exemptions and every facet of the methodology um, that EPA used and the secrecy behind the decision making. So there's a lot of pending litigation. This is far from over. Unfortunately, of course, litigation never moves as as quickly as you want, but we have found that that is, is the final recourse that we've had to take to make sure that we can hopefully restore some of this demand that we lost um, as a result of the abuse of these exemptions. Yeah, and that was the other question I wanted to make sure we ask. You know, now that we're in a post-Trump administration, he was very vocal in saying that he supported ethanol and the Renewable Fuels Association, but his actions proved otherwise. As you mentioned there, the 11th and a half hour, he tried to push some waivers through last minute. What the heck was going on? I mean, why did he say one thing and and do something completely different from what he was saying with his uh, constituents? Well, I think what we saw throughout his administration is he um, he wanted to both uh, do right by the American farmer and he was also trying in his mind to do right by the oil industry as well. We did secure a very important victory um, under the Trump administration, and that was the approval for year-round sales of E15. So that actually is really um, critically important for our ability to grow demand of higher blends. So that is very important. Unfortunately, however, we also got um, nearly 100 small refinery exemptions and and billions of gallons of demand destroyed as part of the renewable fuel standards. So needless to say, a a bit of a mixed bag. Um, But but I think, you know, looking with let's put 2020 in the rearview mirror, looking ahead uh, with this president's focus on climate, on addressing COVID, on jobs in every instance biofuels are going to be a ready tool for his ability to be successful. And so we look forward to working with the administration um, to make sure that in the early days, he can get some easy wins. And those can come by supporting strong blending of biofuels. And as you look here into 2021, 2020 was definitely rough for a lot of biofuel industries. We saw a lot of ethanol plants shut down or have to idle with a lot less striving due to COVID-19. What's your outlook for 2021? Are we going to see things turn around here for the industry? Yes. Uh, So when we've got, I mean, a, a big part of this is just a return to normalcy. I mean, we had the worst fuel demand year in 30 years, and that was very much COVID on top of um, hostile regulators and and, uh, disastrous windstorms and so forth. But very importantly, the vaccine is being distributed. Motorists are turning to the road. That's going to be really important for the the return of fuel demand for us as an industry. Um, I will say it was the amount of plants who had to close at one point, half of the industry was offline in last April because of COVID. So we have recovered, but there is still more stabilizing that needs to take place. That's certainly an an important part of the conversation that we're having, not only with the administration, but also with the new Congress that's come in to make sure policymakers understand policies have got to support rural America. They've got to uh, invest in our ability to grow demand and use of higher blends. Fantastic. Well, Emily, I uh, certainly hope that things turn around here this year for the ethanol industry, and I'm sure corn farmers do as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
Well, again, a big thank you there to Emily. Good stuff she had to share with us today. A little bit better outlook, I think, for what the Biden administration's plans are here for ethanol and biofuels moving forward. But Emily overall sounds pretty optimistic that things are going to turn around this year. So hopefully that is the case. Well, 2021, the year of optimism, I sure hope. But for folks that want to tune into any past or future episodes for the Ag News Daily podcast, you can do so at agnewsdaily.com and follow along on social media while you're at it. And hopefully we can talk a lot more about optimism for the year at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.